In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Frank Capra was one of the most amazing directors in Hollywood, one of the most successful and celebrated directors to this day. His time was mainly in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. He was nominated for nine Academy Awards. He won six. He has won more Academy Awards for being the best director, except for one other director, more than anybody else, except Steven Spielberg. No, he is incredibly revered and respected in Hollywood to this day. His life is really a very interesting life in that he came from Italy, born in 1897. His father was a fruit picker. He was the youngest of seven children. It turned out that their family was not wealthy by any means, but his oldest brother had moved to the United States and settled in L.A., He then was trying to convince the family to come to the United States, this land of opportunity. Finally, his father agreed. 1903, packed up the family. Frank Capra was five years old when they sailed to the United States. If you've ever watched the movie Titanic and you see the, the poor down in the lower steerage, that's what it was like. He said it was so rough and people were so sick. Five years old. And he remembered it very well. He said it was horrible. They finally made it to the United States. And when they came sailing into New York Harbor, his father got him and went up on deck. And he was on the deck and he said, my father said, you see that light over there and that statue? Understand that that's the most important light since the star of Bethlehem. Because that's the light of freedom. Never forget it. Frank Capra never forgot. Freedom. Freedom to choose your set of values that will determine how you live life. Freedom to dream your dreams about who you want to be. Freedom to decide how you want to try to be that person God created you to be. You are free to determine those things. And that will determine your life. Well, they got to New York. They caught a train and they headed all the way to L.A. L.A. at that time had a population of 100,000. Can you imagine? 100,000 in L.A. They arrived, they stayed with his brother till they could start working and get a house of their own. They settled in. Of course, Frank was five years old. He immediately started school. 
as the years went by and he became a teenager, his family wanted him to drop out of school. They wanted him to go to work in the fields right along with the rest of the family. But Frank Capra believed an education was critically important and he wouldn't drop out of school. First one in the family to graduate from high school. When he graduated from high school, he wanted to go to college. No one in the family obviously had ever gone to college. They really didn't want him to continue on. They needed him to work. But he wound up getting scholarship money. He continued to work and to save. He went to Caltech. He started studying chemical engineering. Chemical engineering. In the end, he would get his degree. He would never use a chemical engineering degree. But he said it changed his life. Because of going to college, because of being confronted with all this knowledge and new ways of thinking, everything from poetry to science, he said, I looked at the world differently. And beyond that, he started getting involved in the movie industry there in the 1920s. And the movie industry was moving from silent films to the talkies. And some people were really struggling with that, but Frank, being an engineer, understood kind of how it was happening, and he got on the front leading edge of making this change to where you go with the talking movies. He was out there in front. He would, in the end, direct more than 40 films, as I say, with so many Academy Award nominations. But Frank Capra had a very strong belief about why he was doing what he was doing. He had been raised as a good Roman Catholic. Faith was important to him. And I want to read you what he said. My films must let every man, woman, and child know that God loves them, that I love them, and that peace and salvation will become a reality only when when they all learn to love each other. That was his values. That's what he embraced. It's why he made movies. So that every man, woman, and child will know that God loves them. That's why he would make a movie like It's a Wonderful Life. The movie that has become such a classic, voted by the American Film Institute as one of the top 100 films ever made, voted number one as the most inspirational movie ever made, Because this man had a certain set of values. I want to make films that help everybody know they are loved by God. That's what drove him. Well, he did become very successful with shows like um, It's a Wonderful Life. And when he was receiving one of these awards, I want to read you what the presenter said. The talents you have, Mr. Capra, are not your own. God gave you those talents. They are His gifts to you, to use for His purpose. Frank Capra agreed. But when I read this, what I thought was, those words could have been spoken to each and every one of us here. To everyone who is here, you could hear those words. The talents you have been given are not of your own. God gave you those talents They are His gifts to you, to use for His purpose. Sometimes you and I forget that every single one of us has influence. Every single one of us 
touches other lives. More than you even think about. You have influence that radiates out from you. Whether you are in school, whether you are 90 years old and retired, you have influence. It radiates out from you. In so many ways, you have been given talents, the gifts from God for you to use according to His purpose. What a difference you can make. That's why I chose our scripture lesson this morning, because I was thinking of one who made such a difference in this story. It is obviously the Christmas story. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the world, well, he's asked for a census. And of course, the reason for a census is to count your people so you can tax them. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They had to travel to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. Bethlehem is known as the house of David. It was an 80-mile journey. You either walk it or Mary was going to ride on a donkey. She was nine months pregnant. Can you imagine riding 80 miles on a donkey, being nine months pregnant. It was not the best of times. The timing was horrible. They make it to Bethlehem. It is streaming with people, overrun. People are staying with family and friends. Whatever ends they have, well, they're full. They're not set up for this many guests all at once in a town. Now, we don't know, but I wondered... How many times did Mary and Joseph go and knock on the door of an inn and ask for room and they were told, we don't have any, we're full. I don't know, but you have to imagine that it happened multiple times. But once, once they knocked on the door and they asked for a room and the innkeeper must have looked at them and he saw them as people with an incredible need. And instead of just saying, well, the whole house, the room, the, uh, the inn is full, he said, I do have a, a cattle stall. It's probably better for you anyway. Instead of being in this area with all these people, you'll have privacy, a roof over your head. You're out of the weather. I don't have a lot but I'll give you a place to stay in our cattle stall. What a gift. And I think about this innkeeper and how he gave simply what he had out of a sense of kindness and compassion. And so it was a place for Jesus to be born. A place for Mary and Joseph. And as the years would go by and Jesus would have his ministry, this innkeeper should be able to look over and say, I was a part of that. I helped to make that happen. The scene that was created. I mean, it's a scene that all of us love and think about. Everybody will have a nativity scene in your home. Usually multiple nativity scenes. Have one on the mantle. Have one over on a dresser. One behind the sofa. Have them all over the house. Every single one of them is going to have Mary and Joseph around a manger. A manger was not a crib. A manger was where you put the straw for the cattle to eat. But it was a perfect place to lay a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
And whenever you have a manger scene, this nativity scene, you're always going to have sheep and cattle and an angel above and wise men and shepherds. This innkeeper helped to create the scene that we all worship 2,000 years later as we think about our Lord being born. Everybody has influence to touch the lives of another that radiates and goes out in ways you never know. That's what the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, was really about. Now, all good movies have multiple themes, but there's usually one dominant theme, and the dominant theme in It's a Wonderful Life is your life touches lots and lots of people. Your life has influence. You remember George Bailey growing up in the small town of Bedford Falls. He wants to go off and build big buildings and travel the world. But in the end, he wound up staying in Bedford Falls. He doesn't build big buildings. He builds little houses through a building and loan, helping people who can't get a loan through the big bank, Mr. Potter, who really just wants to make money and doesn't care about the people, but he cares about the people, and he's helping the poor, the working class, those who struggle. But as the years go by, he doesn't make a lot of money. He lives in the same old drafty house. He's married, four kids, and he finally looks at his life and thinks, I'm a failure. Life has gone by and I'm a failure. He looks at all of his problems and he thinks it'd be better if I'd never been born. He thinks about taking his own life and God sends a guardian angel named Clarence to come down and be with him. And he finally says to his guardian angel, I wish I'd never been born. And Clarence says, okay, I can give you that wish. Here's what the world would have looked like had you never been born. Have you ever thought about what would the world have looked like if you had never been born? George had that opportunity. Suddenly he's going through the town and it's so different. I mean, the name in Bedford Falls, it's Potterville. Mr. Potter's taking it over from everybody. And things seem so dreary and oppressive. And things are hard for so many people. He wants to go see Bailey Park, the place that he helped put money in for these little homes and people to have a roof over their head. They go to Bailey Park, and it's a cemetery. He's with Clarence, and he's going, I don't understand this. There should be homes here. This is Bailey Park. Not a cemetery. You can't miss the symbolism here. We've gone from life, a neighborhood, to death. He sees a headstone. And it says, Bailey, he goes over to look at the headstone. It's Harry, his younger brother. And Clarence says, Harry died when he was nine years old. He fell through the ice. He drowned. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He went off to fight the war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved every man on a transport that was going down. No. No, every one of them died. Because Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry when he fell through the ice. 
And then Clarence speaks the line of what the whole movie's about, what Frank Capra wants you to hear. It was spoken by Harry, by, by Clarence, to George. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. And when he isn't around, it leaves an awful hole, doesn't it? Don't you see, George? You really had a wonderful life. Each man's life touches so many others' lives. It's what we forget and fail to see that everybody is a person of influence. You're touching so many lives. You change the world. And when you choose to have in your freedom the values of God's love, and that's what you're sharing... You're going to find what it does for you. You are able to say, it's been a wonderful life. You know, whenever somebody joins St. Luke's, and I know today's membership Sunday, I I was thinking about it. You know, we always ask three questions. First of all, do you reaffirm the vows you took at the time of your baptism or you're being baptized? That it simply says, I affirm my faith in Christ. Secondly, I'll be loyal to the church. And support it with my prayers, presence, my gifts, and my service. But third, unique to St. Luke's, we always ask, will you live in such a way that everything you say and do, you will seek to share God's love and bring hope to the world? Those aren't just words. It's how in your freedom you make a fundamental decision I want to live in such a way that what I say and what I do shares God's love and helps bring hope in the world. You're a person of influence. You touch so many lives. We all do. The world would be so different without you. It's what I want us to think about this morning. And I want to just leave you with two questions to think about. One, how do you look at other people How do you see other people? When that innkeeper opened the door, there stood Mary and Joseph. How would he see them? A problem? Oh, good Lord, I'm totally packed. I got people everywhere. Another couple. Are they a problem? Did he look at them and think, well, there's another buck to make. Just got to find them someplace, make a little money. I think he opened the door and what he saw was a young couple, a husband, a wife, about to be parents. And when he saw them, he was moved with compassion and wanted to do something kind, to share what he had. And I look at the effect it has had for 2,000 years. How do you see people? When you wind up going into a store right now. You go to the mall and you go into a store and there's a clerk you're needing to help you and they are frazzled and they're running in many directions. Are they just somebody who is a pawn to get you what you need? You know, when I find myself getting a little frustrated with the help sometimes in a store, I will think, what if that was my daughter or my son? It's somebody's daughter, somebody's son. How would I want my kids treated? How will I treat them? 
whenever you're stuck on I-235 and sitting there, which happens every day, do you look at all the people around you and think, what a nuisance you are? Or do you ever think they're just simply trying to get home like you're trying to get home? Or they're trying to go to a party like you're trying to go to a party? You know, there are people who look different, people who think different. When you look at them, do you see that they're just bad, evil people? You know, we we live in a world where we like to categorize them and they. We live in a world where we're so quick to put labels and, and judge people. When you see people, how do you see them? Do you take the time to look deeply? Who stands before you? A child of God? What do you see? You know, you're going to find whatever you look for. That's the fascinating thing. You tend to find in people what you look for. The 1940s and 50s, after World War II, we were scared to death of communism. So we believed that there was a communist under every bed. We had Senator Joe McCarthy come out and call it McCarthyism, that everybody was looking for all the communists that there were in the United States, who was trying to be subversive. No, we were always looking and looking. What do we see in people? So what they did was they developed lists of all these directors in Hollywood, all these actors and actresses. You tend to look like you have bad ideas. And so they made up lists. Blacklist. You can't work in Hollywood if you're blacklisted because you must be a communist. You can't direct movies. You must be a communist. That's what they were looking for. It was interesting, they formed a board that would review all movies to decide which ones were subversive movies. And the board reviewed It's a Wonderful Life. It came out on Christmas Day, December the 25th, 1946. It was reviewed in early 1947. And the board decided that this was a subversive communist plot. It was communist because look at the way that bankers were portrayed. They were portrayed as greedy, bad people. And that's a favorite topic and line of communists trying to undermine our confidence in the banking system, which is a part of the free enterprise. And so you can see the way bankers are treated in the show, and that shows that this was a communist plot. This wasn't a communist plot. But you find what you look for. What do you look for when you look into the face of other people? One of the things that we have in our membership covenant says, I will strive to see Christ in the face of others. When the innkeeper opened the door and he saw Mary and Joseph, he saw something more. Young couple, about to be parents, And he was moved with compassion and kindness. So secondly, what are your talents? What are the abilities that you have to bless life? Do you look for the opportunities every day? You know, sometimes we're thinking it's got to be big. 
I believe you have opportunities every single day right in front of you to use your talents, your abilities, your means to bless life every day. For George Bailey, he wanted to build skyscrapers. Do the big thing. Never did build a skyscraper. What he built was little houses for people who didn't have much to have a roof over their head. And it changed their world. For an innkeeper, he looked at a couple who didn't have anything and he had very little and he said, I'll share what I have. And they wound up being in a cattle stall and we remember it and celebrate it 2,000 years later. Do you ever think about the fact you have talents, you have gifts, and every day you'll have an opportunity to bless life? There is 15 days before Christmas. Oh my goodness. 15 days before Christmas. That scares you to death. What if each of these 15 days before Christmas, you, I, each of us, the next 15 days, every day, we tried to make a commitment to find something that we can do that is concrete to bless a life. If you did that, if we all did that for the next 15 days, I guarantee you it will prepare our hearts for Christmas so when our Lord is born on December the 25th, you and I will celebrate and be able to say, it's a wonderful life. There's a wonderful story, one of my very favorite. It's an old story. You may have heard it. I've read it in so many different places. I've shared it before, but it has such truth. A story that is true took place a number of years ago now in a little Midwestern town. It's about a boy named Wally Perling. Wally was nine years old. And he's supposed to be in the fourth grade, but he is in the second grade. Wally was big for his age, bigger than all the other kids, but he was a little slow physically and mentally, and everybody knew it. But Wally was so kind so compassionate, so caring that all the other kids just accepted him and loved him and so did the parents and so did the teachers. Well, while he was in the second grade and the good news was every year Miss Lombard's second grade class was responsible for putting on the Christmas pageant. And Wally was thrilled that finally he was going to have the opportunity to be in the Christmas pageant. And he knew he wanted to be a shepherd. I mean, he wanted to carry a staff. Or he wanted to be a wise man, carry the gold. But Miss Lombard, she had a better idea. He would be a perfect innkeeper. Someone who is big and tall, strong, standing there at the door, who's able to say, we have no room in the inn, be gone. Besides, he had three lines. He was on stage a very short time. It was the perfect part for Wally. Well, the night came. Everybody turned out in town, a small town, Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, didn't matter if you had relatives, you came to the Christmas pageant. And here was all the kids running around in their wings and their halos. And you had the shepherds and bathrobes and staffs. And Wally was just wide-eyed. He was excited, getting into the spirit. This was the night. He was so excited. When the show began and he was in the wings, Several times, Miss Lombard had to grab him and pull him back because he almost wandered out on stage just to be a part of the excitement. 
Well, finally, his part came. He was behind the door. He was ready. Joseph showed up, knocked on the door. He opens the door. What do you want? We seek lodging, sir. There is no room in the inn. Be gone. But, sir, we have traveled such a long way. We are so tired. Surely you have somewhere that we could lay our head. We have no room, I said. Be gone. But, sir, my wife Mary, she is heavy with child. Surely you have somewhere, just a corner, where we could lay our head. Now for the first time, while he wasn't looking at Joseph, he was looking at Mary. And he was staring at Mary, and he just kept looking at her. He didn't say anything. His facial expression began to soften. His arms began to move to his side. And he just stood there looking at Mary. The silence was prolonged, and the audience knew somebody was blowing a line. <laughs> Finally, Miss Lombard from offstage was trying to whisper as loud as she could, Say, no, be gone. And Wally repeated, no, be gone. And Joseph put his arm around Mary and they turned to walk away. Wally did not come back inside like he was supposed to. He just stayed in the door watching them leave. And as he watched them walking away, tears started streaming down his cheek. And he was watching them and these tears were running down his cheek when suddenly his facial expression changed and he got excited. And this Christmas pageant became different from any other Christmas pageant. Because in that moment, Wally got excited and he said, Joseph, Joseph, come back. Bring Mary back. You can have my room. <laughs> Some people said the Christmas show had been ruined. But most other people said it was the best Christmas play they'd ever seen. Because it really carried home the Christmas message. The message that we are all free to choose our values and how we see each other and to remember that we are all people of influence and that when we choose to be kind in the smallest of ways that we are able to offer, you bless life. It radiates out. You help to change the world. And when you choose to live in that spirit of love, what you're going to find, what it does for you, well, you're going to be able to say, it's a wonderful life. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen.